Hey folks, your old pal Will here, the leader of Michael and Us Nation, and your own personal god emperor. My colleague Luke would be very upset with me if I didn't tell you what's been happening on the Michael and Us Patreon, because we have an extra episode every week on patreon.com slash michaelandus. Recently we watched a very bad right-wing comedy about Bernie Sanders called Free Lunch Express, starring Kevin Sorbo and Malcolm McDowell. Luke had a discussion with Josh Olson and Dave Anthony about Amazon's new Mayor Pete documentary. There have also been recent episodes on subjects ranging from Jurassic Park to No Time to Die to Rush Hour to the comedy of George Carlin. Folks, we need your $5 a month to help fund our lifestyles of wanton hedonism and excess. So please come on down to patreon.com slash Michael and us and become an official member of Michael and us nation. Yes, folks, that's the playing it on YouTube for Luke. That's the sound of come together being covered by uh, the fifth Beatle, you could say, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Robin Williams. Turn Just, it off. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. You probably didn't see it. In the late 90s, I remember there was a very hyped TV special that was about the making of George Martin's last album. George Martin, for those who don't know, the producer, often called the fifth yeah, Beatle. Yeah, the actual fifth Beatle. Yeah, the, the, the one who really helped elevate the Beatles, took them to the next level. And he was doing an album that was like his farewell or something. And as part of this, I mean, George Martin, such a great producer, someone who knows so much about music, had the idea of getting a bunch of celebrities to come in and do Beatles covers. So that's what this special was. It was various celebrities coming in, hobnobbing with George, then doing their appallingly shitty karaoke cover. So that's what the origin of the Robin Williams thing we just heard is? Yeah, and in fairness to Robin Williams, like, of course he took that invitation. Who would turn that down? <laughs> Jim Carrey did I Am The Walrus, and he did a very Jim Carrey version of it. You know, <laughs> you know that stupid kind of bullshit. Uh, Goldie Hawn did a kind of, like, cool, like, sexy, hard day's night. Like, it's been a hard Okay, please stop. <laughs> okay, I won't do any more of that. But, and then best of all, Sean Connery does a talk singing version of In My Life. There are places. Okay, I, I, I beg you to stop. All my life, <laughs> though some have changed. <laughs> anyway, folks, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Oh, Luke Savage. Uh, welcome back, everyone. It sounds like Will enjoyed the 90s Beatles special so much that he wanted to do an entire movie that's basically just that <laughs> same conceit. He's tortured me with a lot of his suggestions for this show, but this one was, uh, I gotta tell you, this was rough. Well, you know, in fairness, I was saying to Luke, I'd love to do something Beatles-oriented. I just watched Get Back, the new Beatles documentary, the much-hyped one, and I think we should do Across the Universe. And you groaned. You said, come on, well, let's do something good. Well, let's there's do... all kinds of good Beatles things we could be doing. The Hard, a Hard Day's Night, directed by Richard Lester, is one of the great British new wave films. It's an actual, 
It's a real film. It's one of my favorites. We could have done that. Could have done. Maybe we should have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Times I was right. Uh, could have done Magical Mystery Tour, which is the one I guess Paul yeah. McCartney directed. It's a total mess of a movie. It would have been fun. Could have done Yellow Submarine, also a total mess of the movie. The Beatles are barely in it. Would have been way more fun than this. But uh, then my trump card, my trump card, which even you at the time, I don't know if you stand by this, but even you at the time had to acknowledge was a good point was, yes, but Across the Universe is the Michael and Us one. This is the one that was tailor-made for our <laughs> podcast, and you said fuck. <laughs> so here we are, we're doing it. Uh, we have some other stuff off the top, though. And by the way, I, t- I take back everything I said. We shouldn't have done this movie. Uh, uh, you must... You must never listen to it. In fact, you must burn it. <laughs> well, so I haven't seen the uh, Get Back yet, the, the new documentary, but it sounds like it's pretty good. Oh, I loved it. It was a dream come true. Eight hours hanging with the boys. And it gives you just such a, such a more nuanced and complete understanding of what the breakup was like. You've probably seen Let It Be, the original documentary that all this footage was shot for. Which yeah, of course. Everyone remembers that for having the fights in it, for showing a band kind of on the rocks. This one has that, but it also has the boys hanging out. It has all the good stuff. It has the has all the bad stuff. It shows, you know, how dynamite they still were when they were just sitting there doing the work, getting into a groove. Uh, but you also see just all the tensions, all the all the changing dynamics. You see how Paul has basically become the Beatle. Mm-hmm. You see how John is kind of checked out. You see how Yoko is in the inner circle, like literally in the inner circle, sitting next to him. I know Yoko hater folks. But I am just saying. Well, you've been to multiple Yoko Ono exhibits, in fact. I'm always trying to like her. <laughs> I like the idea of Yoko. <laughs> well, yeah, so I haven't seen Get Back yet, although I'm looking forward to it. But the Let It Be film has always been a favorite of mine. I know its reputation is that they're fighting throughout it. But I remember the last time I watched it thinking that the fight scenes, such as they are, were tame. I mean, Let It Be has the reputation that it does, partly because when it was released, it was kind of, I mean, I suppose in some ways an unfinished album. I mean, I know they weren't, they weren't happy with it um and it was re-released as let it be naked and i guess the uh in the 2000s at some point yeah the early 2000s and that really is a much better version of the record doesn't have all that phil specter shit you know all those choirs and harps yeah there were there's a lot of overproduction i mean the the original version of the long and winding road with that uh orchestral score is really really bad and the let it be naked version which strips that away is so much better but let it be partly has this reputation because it was the last beatles album to be released it wasn't, in fact, the last Beatles album to be recorded. That was Abbey Road. And what's amazing is, I don't know about the others, but I know John Lennon felt for years after that that was a really lazy record. You know, in his famous Rolling Stone interview in 1970, he's really dismissive of it when he's talking to Jan Winner. The A-side for him is just all of us doing our own thing. You know, we each, we had these songs that were really individualized. Like I had Come Together, George had Here Comes a Son, Paul had Maxwell's Silver Hammer or whatever, but our collaboration is abandoned broken down and then for the the b-side of abbey road he's just like all that was was bits of songs like stuck together because we couldn't you know we were too lazy to make a real album it's like if you listen to abbey road it's like okay (laughs) these guys were so were so tight as a band that like this is their laziest work and it's incredible it would be interesting to see a comparable documentary about the making of sergeant pepper or rubber soul where you probably would have seen everyone much more on the same page everyone more equally invested in it like in the get back documentary you see the john is nowhere near as interested in this as Paul is at this point. 
Nevertheless, one of the things that's so compelling about it is seeing them at work, seeing how, yeah, Paul is such a dynamo. He's like the Mozart of pop, but he's so much better when he's doing it in front of John. Yeah. Well, as Paul McCartney's uh, eponymous first solo album in 1970 uh, clearly demonstrates, I remember in uh, one of the funniest parts of Lennon's Rolling Stone interview is just how condescending he is about <laughs> Paul's record. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but you know, I used to think John was being unfair, but it's not wrong. It's a pretty lazy <laughs> record. It's got a few kind of memorable songs, but a lot of it sounds like kind of early versions of songs that you might hear on the White Album or, you know, songs that didn't quite make the cut. Like, you know that song in the White Album, Why Don't We Do It in the Road, which is kind of almost like a self-parody type song. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, the McCartney album, the, the 1971, uh, sounds like that. There's even, even has one of the laziest things I think anyone's ever done on a record, which is there's the song called Junk that he wrote. And then later on the record, there's one called Sing Along Junk. And it's just <laughs> the same song without the vocal. So you can sing it yourself, folks. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered to write another song. I spent so many years kind of disrespecting Paul, I think, regarding him as sort of a lightweight, as sort of like a, oh, doopty 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 kind of mu musician, which, I mean, frankly, he is. He is all those things. He spent a lot of years being those things. But, you know, just watching the Get Back documentary made me realize again that, you know, he is a musical genius. There's a scene that's been going around on social media where he's just like strumming on the guitar trying to come up with something. And then within three minutes, he comes up with Get Back, almost <laughs> fully formed. And he's sitting in front of George and Ringo, who are both visibly bored. But then as he's working through this song, as he's finding it, they start bobbing their heads and they start pulling out their guitars and like getting in on it. <laughs> The man's a genius. Uh, he's the best Beatle. Gotta give it up for him. <laughs> I don't know if I w want to weigh in on that uh, on that very <laughs> fundamental question. I'd still go to the mats uh, for the idea that John Lennon made more memorable music in the 10 years after the Beatles broke up than Paul has made in the many decades uh, since. But we're not talking about solo careers here. We're talking about who is the best Beatle. <laughs> and in that competition, I think we have a winner. And I think his name is Paul. <laughs> well, because uh, so many people have been watching this documentary, there's also been a kind of resurgence of a really annoying type of contrarianism, which, you know, I kind of get because it's, it's pretty generic to like the Beatles. But I think the only thing more generic is trying to do the contrarian take about how, well, the Beatles are not actually very good or like the Beatles were never good or they're overrated or something. I think the Beatles are pretty good. I'm comfortable saying that on this show. Takes like that used to annoy me more, but I'm a little more zen about it now. It's like it's like pissing in the Grand Canyon. You know, it's huge. They're the Beatles. <laughs> Nothing will harm them. I I've also come to realize that, you know, I have takes like that of my own. Uh, I feel that way about Steven Spielberg. <laughs> And it's healthy and good to have at least a couple of like gigantic, monolithic cultural touchstones that you have a little bit of antipathy for. Yeah, one of the funniest Patreon cancellations we ever had, like if, if you're a creator on Patreon, you have, uh, you get access to exit surveys where people can tell you, you know, why they quit. None of them do with us, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but the funniest one ever was one where uh, somebody said they'd enjoyed the show for months or it might have been years, but uh, Will Sloan's constant condemnations of Tom Hanks were a step too far. <laughs>
Well, I like the Beatles a lot more than Tom Hanks, and I, I think everybody, even the Beatles haters, down in their heart of hearts agrees. I guess I'm somewhat sympathetic to, you know, not liking the Beatles if you grew up in the kind of household where, like, your parents were listening to them all the time. I didn't happen to have that experience. So for me, you know, the Beatles were something I kind of discovered at, like, 14 or 15, mm-hmm. and I've always been able to uh, enjoy and appreciate them since. Yeah, I feel that way about Tom Petty. I heard a lot of him growing up, and I think a lot of people feel warm feelings to the music that their parents were always playing, but I feel the opposite. Uh, ABBA and Tom Petty are forever ruined for me. (laughs) Well, after I finished watching the movie that Will uh, imposed this week, uh, I did listen to Sgt. Pepper as a palate cleanser, and I I feel a little bit better because the film Across the Universe, which is a kind of, uh, I don't know, Beatles jukebox musical, is a very odd and, and I found a somewhat nauseating experience. The New York Times raves. Strawberry fields. I fell in love with this movie. stars for Across the Universe, a bold, beautiful, visually enchanting musical. Across the Universe, rated PG-13. I saw it in theaters when it came out. You know, I was one of a small number of people who saw it in theaters. The film was an absolute box office bomb. Well, everyone else was in my dorm, let me tell you. (laughs) For a certain kind of person who is 18 years old in 2007, that movie was a seismic cultural event. Well, when I saw it in theaters, uh, I think everybody I saw it with, everyone in the theater, uh, really, really enjoyed it. I hated it. Yeah. And... uh, I won't say it's uh, it's aged well at all for me, but uh, the film is a very strange experience because it features all of these songs that you like, but done in these versions that you absolutely hate. So I think it's kind of rare to watch something that is constantly conjuring up things that you kind of cherish and enjoy, but serving them to you in portions that you find totally indigestible. I saw this movie when I was in first year university. It was at the end of 2017 and I had just failed a science exam. We had to take one science credit at the University of Toronto to be a well-rounded student, they said. You had to, and I just completely bombed it. Felt awful. I was wandering through the annex in Toronto in despair. And I walked past the Bloor Cinema, you know, like Woody Allen and Hannah and her sisters just had to like get my mind off. It's so funny because uh, because there's another story you have that's like the exact same story, but I think it was a Chinese exam that you took. Oh, failed. yeah. Like this happened multiple times and each one was accompanied by a walk of shame in the snow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I did very badly in Chinese history class too. But that after that science exam, I just, I walked past the Bloor Theater and I, I thought I need to see a movie, any movie, literally anything that's playing that will get my mind off this. And it was across the universe. And I sat there for all 130 minutes of it. And it was just like, yeah, this is horrible, but at least I'm not thinking about the science exam anymore. <laughs> I thought like, oh, maybe it'll be some nice music. Uh, I have one other personal story about this movie, which is in the summer of 2009, I had some roommates who were huge, huge fans of this movie, which is fun. Whatever floats your boat, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever gets you through the night. And one of them kept trying to say that they thought the Eddie Izzard version of For the Benefit of Mr. Kite was better than the John Lennon version. Right, I remember those takes. Yeah, like I was incredulous. I was like, you you can't actually believe that, can you? 
And he was like, no, 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 no. Listen, he played both of them one after another. <laughs> he played the John Lennon one. He's like, see, this one's just the song. <laughs> but the Eddie Izzard version has all these, you know, for the benefit of Mr. Kites, very bizarre, you know, trampolines and other interesting things, you know. <laughs> British comedian riffing bullshit. <laughs> the celebrated Mr. K performs his feet on Saturday at Bishopsgate. Nice neck of the woods. The Hendersons, they're gonna dance and sing as Mr. K flies through the ring. Don't be late. Don't be late. So those are my two strongest associations with this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, do you enjoy I Am the Walrus? Well, what if you heard Bono doing it? What if you heard Bono doing an American accent? That happens in this movie. There is actually one song in this movie I like. I'm curious how you feel about it. I like Joe Cocker doing Come Together. What do you think? Whatever. I don't like anything in this movie. This All movie's right. terrible. All right, folks. There's a little bit of that productive friction that we're always <laughs> looking for on this podcast. <laughs> So I wanted to do this movie because, yeah, it is the most Michael and Us Beatles product. It's like if you go to a shitty museum or a shitty science center in some major city or some aspiring major city and they have an exhibit that's like, the 60s. Yeah. Then you go in and there's a Woodstock room and there's a lava lamp and there's a wall of framed record albums that has like the Jimi Hendrix experience. Yeah, there's just like a, a song by CCR or Jefferson Airplane playing over and over again. Yeah, this movie is the $50 million version of that Peter Fonda infomercial. <laughs> I think it was $70 million. <laughs> oh, good God. What a waste. <laughs> so I thought this will definitely have some of those boomer politics I'm looking for. This is the movie that I thought maybe I was going to see when we watched Easy Rider a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But you only really get that stuff from from the people looking back on that time. I don't actually know how old Julie Taymor is, the director of the film. You know, a, a much renowned theater director. So I think she's been around a while. Perhaps she is a boomer. I could obviously look this up, but I'm not going to do it. I actually hope she was like 24 when she made this movie because it would be more excusable. (laughs) Oh, by the way, she's on the flight logs. Actually, I have one more funny thing I know about Julie Taymor. Again, I don't know how old she is or what she looks like or anything, but I do know that last year she made a movie called The Glorias, and it was a biopic of Gloria Steinem but it was an I'm Not There style biopic where four different actresses played Gloria Steinem, including Julianne Moore. And I haven't seen the movie. Nobody's seen the movie. It's incredible that no one's seen the movie. It missed the, the zeitgeist when it was greenlit, I'm sure, was putting a baseball on a t-ball stand and just, <laughs> just ready to knock it out of the park. But I guess fashion's changed in the interim. But what I did hear about the movie is like the framing device is all the Glorias are on a bus together. And then at the end of the film, you find out they're all going to the Women's March. Wow. I don't know, that that puts this film in context a little bit more. I do remember when it came out, a lot of people, including people I saw it with, were sort of watching it in the context of the Iraq War. And I mean, I think in that way, uh, it can be seen as a kind of cynical cash-in. I mean, in the way that the sort of biopic genre does, in the way that the biopic genre often is, everything this film serves up is, yeah, like you said, a kind of exhibit of the 1960s. 
We've referenced it before on the show, but this movie's kind of the equivalent of that scene in Children of Men where Clive Owen visits the Battersea Power Station and it's kind of this like private loft with this big art collection. And you see, you know, the, the pig from Pink Floyd's Animals, you know, the cover of Animals, which of course also features the Power Station. There's, you know, Picasso's Guernica, Michelangelo's David, it's all there. And all of it's been kind of stripped of context and it's it's actually not very beautiful anymore. But beauty aside, you know, stripped of context, there's just no kind of, there's no meaning to any of it. There's nothing to sink your teeth into. That's what the rendering of the 60s in this movie is like. All of the characters are just these like cardboard cutout cliches of like, you know, the, the generic hippies, the student radicals who are maybe just a little too radical. Don't want to go too far with this stuff. Uh, the greatest generation parents who just don't get it, man. <laughs> yeah. They don't get it. Yeah, they're not hip. They don't dig the protests. All of these character points are established in just the most kind of stock and generic ways. So when one of the you know mother characters is talking to her child, who's a, a student over the phone, she's saying, you know, Princeton, everyone you're going to meet there is going to be a promiscuous dope fiend. <laughs> And that's meant to establish that, yeah, she's like a, you know, prudish boomer parent who doesn't understand that the times they are a changing. <laughs> By the way, I was interested in what you said about the art being kind of divorced from all context and meaning, because there's another Beatles movie or Beatles themed movie that came out a couple years ago that kind of takes a different tack from this. It was called Yesterday, directed by Danny Boyle, I believe. And I didn't see it, but no, the, I haven't seen it. the premise of the film is that uh, imagine a world where the Beatles didn't exist exist and this guy who came from our world somehow entered that world and got rich with all these Beatles songs and there's an assumption in that movie that divorced from all context this music would still be a complete cultural phenomenon it is would... it set in the 21st century yeah I, I believe it is yeah, I, so it, that even that makes it make even less sense as a conceit yeah it's interesting because a lot of the Beatles music it's funny how every generation keeps discovering the Beatles there's something that's sort of timeless about them and yet I don't know, a song like Maxwell's Silver Hammer is so indebted to like English musical tradition. Uh, Back in the USSR is obviously playing on what the Beach Boys were doing at the time. A million other examples in the Beatles catalog of stuff that's just picking on stuff from either history or the zeitgeist or the, the ether or whatever. Anyway, that's one movie taking one approach, which is saying this Beatles stuff, this is this stuff is great no matter what context you plop it into, no matter what time it comes from. It could be it could be from all time. This movie, Across the Universe, is very consciously positioning the Beatles in the 1960s, saying that this music was the soundtrack to all of the social upheavals that happened in the 60s. And, it's funny that and, you, 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 the way you just said that is like how you'd read about it in like a Time Life edition <laughs> or something. Like that's, you know, the really hacky second graph that somebody's writing when they're doing their like, you know, five sentence capsule review of Sgt. Pepper. There's a scene during a race riot where the police are tear gassing black protesters where one of the kids starts singing Let It Be as an impassioned like protest anthem which made, made doesn't make doesn't make sense ma- in the context of a protest let it be what does that mean or i think what he means is because this movie is taking the most literal path <laughs> as possible with each song i think what he means is please let us be 
let us be the man. I didn't. I okay. I don't you? Even, don't you think? I didn't even get that. But so I mean, that device you just described is basically you know this is a one note movie and like that's the only note. I mean, the ratio of regular scenes to music is is probably about one to one. There's so much music, There's, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and like it, a lot of times it's not a full song. It'll just be like twenty or thirty seconds of one. So as a result, you know, much of the plot, such as there is one, uh, is driven forward as the songs are playing and. And the device used over and over again involves kind of staging uh, the scenes by way of the most direct and literal interpretation of the lyric. So an example would be there's a scene where one of the characters gets drafted and then, uh, you know, the, the song is I want you, she's so heavy. And for the I want you portion of it, it's like it's the Uncle Sam I want you poster and he's like grabbing them or something. And then for the she's so heavy part, it's a bunch of uh, soldiers and they're carrying the, uh, the Statue of Liberty. I'm sorry, you look at a scene like that and you have to think were the Beatles worth it <laughs> if it was all leading to this like <laughs> yeah. if the rule you follow <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny the strategy of this movie is to say the 60s were a time of great social upheaval what was the music of the 60s it was the Beatles therefore this music is a logical background to all of these social upheavals and I'm sorry the movie is confusing the Beatles with John Lennon <laughs> the Beatles not to say they weren't political at all but you know when you're thinking of 60s protest singers it's it's not the beatles like you don't associate them with the vietnam war i mean you say the movie is confusing the beatles with john lennon i think what it's doing is it's just decontextualizing the whole era and yeah serving it back to us like a museum exhibit so the beatles are just used as this kind of shorthand for a uh, generic cultural aura that people uh, vaguely associate with that time, which is so funny because this movie ostensibly is about all this political stuff. You know, one of the main characters gets involved in kind of the new left and an anti-war activism. And, you know, Vietnam stuff and the civil rights movement are both frequently alluded to in the in the film, but as kind of like states of mind as opposed <laughs> to actual historical events. And just again and again, the film gives you these Beatles songs and then stages things directly around the lyrics in a way that really destroys the poetry of the songs. There's no abstraction to them anymore. It's just, hey, look at all this crazy stuff uh, happening. It's You might say it's Helter Skelter. Well, what if we played <laughs> the song Helter Skelter over it? Yeah, I was thinking about the Beatles movies or movies that have made use of the Beatles that I've liked. And A Hard Day's Night has that wonderful iconic scene where the boys just find an empty field somewhere where they can be, where they can be free, you know, <laughs> away from all the pressures of celebrity. And you here can't buy me love and it's like four minutes of them frolicking god i wish we'd watch that yeah just just magical <laughs> magical yellow submarine is full of all these wonderful psychedelic cartoon interpretations of these songs but there's something about both those examples that doesn't insist a meaning upon them yes it's just one visual interpretation of it it's not intended to be like the definitive visual interpretation it's not she's so heavy because she's the statue of liberty because she's America and she's on your back. A related device the film uses is it constantly makes these very vague and again, totally decontextualized visual references to the Beatles. So Jude, the kind of main character, which yeah, incidentally, another <laughs> a further device the film uses is that every character has a name like Jude or Prudence. Lucy or Prudence. And Hello, yeah. I am Mr. Octopus's garden. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a Dr. Robert, there's a Mr. Kite. Bono is Dr. Robert. Is Eddie Izzard as Mr. Kite? That's right. Uh-huh. 
So yeah, this is a film uh, whose, whose basic conceit is so lazy that they gave all the characters names that appear in Beatles songs so that they can uh, stage everything around those. A lot of Easter eggs for the fans, too. Like, uh, there's a part where someone says, she came in through the bathroom window. Oh, uh, come on. That's that's a good example of how lazy this movie is, how lazily it just kind of drops Beatles references. Because in that scene, the premise is like two guys are just, they're just sitting in their apartment and this woman just like appears in the apartment and they're totally unmoved by it. And the film is saying, like, hey, look, everyone, it's a new character. Then their roommate appears and she's like, where did she come from? And one of them just says, she came in through the bathroom window. By the way, what if I told you that Prudence was a closeted gay woman and that there's a scene of her literally in the closet and people singing, dear Prudence. Oh yeah, won't you come out and play? I mean, numerous scenes in this movie where I just wanted to die. <laughs> but so Jude, the main character, is supposed to be this artist. And there's one scene where he's just trying to draw, do a drawing based on a green apple, which is just an image vaguely associated with the Beatles. There's a rooftop concert, which is like the end of Let It Be. At the beginning, there's a kind of English dance hall scene where there's a band playing, wearing leather jackets that look like the ones the Beatles wore in the 50s and kind of their earliest incarnation. You know, there's some Liverpool stuff just thrown in there because the main character, Jude, is a scouser. There's a scene where someone says, give my regards to Broad Street and then has to go on an adventure to find their missing master tapes. Okay, we made at least one of those things up. Uh, Incidentally, another movie we should do uh, for this podcast. I mean, that one I think is, if anything, even harder to watch than this. At least that one has a couple of actual Beatles in it. The best thing about that movie is that it has a tie-in video game that uh, right up there with the E.T. game that basically crashed the American video game industry for two years is regarded as one of the worst video games of all time. And I've actually played it. It is literally the Give My Regards to Broad Street video game. And you you drive around in like a pixelated little car as Paul, ostensibly, trying to uh, retrieve the stolen demo tapes. And then this MIDI version of like one part of Band on the Run just plays over and over and over again. I think we've used it on the show before. <laughs> it's one of my favorite pieces of music. We watched Give My Regards to Broad Street like 10 years ago together and we put it on and we were like well everyone says this is one of the worst movies ever made but how bad can it be it's it's got paul mccartney he's doing paul mccartney songs surely the music will at least be like kind of good right it is actually that bad it's pretty bad (laughs) so is it worth uh discussing the plot of this movie such as it is yeah let me see what i can uh, glean from my memory from having to having watched it a night ago so you got a couple of you got a couple of lads you've got prudence and you got uh maxwell and you got uh the boys and they are having a little help with their friends there are lads at uh, uh, Oxford. Where is it? No, it's uh, it's, it's Princeton. It's Princeton. That's right, because it's set in the United States. <laughs> That's right. But Princeton is not for them. It's keeping them down, man. Meanwhile, there's there's another fella who comes in and come together, welcomes him in, and together they protest the Vietnam War. <laughs> What else do you need from the plot? I don't know. There's a few kind of romantic subplots that just sort of... <laughs> Boring. <laughs> just sort of happen. Uh, inexplicably, just they can pack more kind of generic 60s stuff in there. Uh, they leave Princeton and then they go to Greenwich Village. Oh, oh yeah. They go to the Cafe Wa. Wouldn't all this protest shit have made more sense if it were like...
like the Bob Dylan movie. I mean, so much of this iconography is not actually iconography I associate with the Beatles. I don't associate Greenwich Village with the Beatles. Right, and then, uh, you know, the Lucy character gets involved in an organization called Students for a Democratic Republic that's clearly just, you know, the SDS. And then all of a sudden, they're just at uh, Columbia. They're at an anti-war protest there. And again, it's just not really... Why? why how is that associated with the Beatles apart from just, uh, well, uh, during the 1960s, these separate things existed. They were in the same dimension. I'm reminded of that Hillary Clinton documentary yes. where it shows all that footage of... Right, the, the intro uh, theme music is like all this footage of Vietnam protests and civil rights. And, and meanwhile, Hillary Clinton was alive at the same time. Uh, she, she, she was she, campaigning for Barry Goldwater. <laughs> I, I do think it's John Lennon that has made this possible. It's allowed for this movie to do a sort of retconning of the entire Beatles oeuvre, none of which was nearly as political as John's later stuff. The aura from that has been able to kind of rub off on the Beatles and therefore it can be cynically packaged into this film because it's all just one big 60s soup. Well, I think you made a pretty spirited attempt to regurgitate the plot. I mean, in all seriousness, not much more than that happens in the movie. There are just so many little uh, side adventures like finding Mr. Kite or finding Bono, who's on the the Scooby-Doo mystery machine, it seems. (laughs) Doesn't really make any sense. They just come across this kind of hippie bus that's painted in psychedelic colors. I actually hated this scene almost more than anything else in the movie because Bono comes in with a completely unearned swagger of being like, yeah, here I am, Mr. Counterculture, uh, Mr. Hippie Dippy, I'm Bono. Bono, (laughs) folks. What is Bono supposed to be? I think if you strip the artifice from this scene, Bono is clearly some kind of like Charles Manson character. It's clearly Mm. like a dangerous cult that he's leading. Why is he called Dr. Robert? What function does any of this serve? Same with the, what what is the Mr. Kite scene? What is the scene where where Max, who's, you know, come back from Vietnam, you know, he gets drafted and he has this traumatic experience in Vietnam. He's sitting in hospital and then there's this scene with happiness as a warm gun and then there's just Selma Hayek who's dressed in a kind of, shall we say, form-fitting outfit. (laughs) Kind of, yeah, Halloween like nurse Halloween costume and there's a kind of like there are five Salma there are five sexy nurse Salma Hayek's has nothing to do with the song at all actually I I am now thinking that Bono is well cast in this movie because you're right he plays the dark side of the Beatles legacy he plays a Charles Manson like figure he plays uh, the fallout from the 60s he he's the path that these characters shouldn't go down and who better to represent that than Bono (laughs) It's funny because, yeah, insofar as the film even attempts anything political, you know, the romance plot between uh, Jude and Lucy is thrown into chaos when Lucy gets involved in this, you know, SDS-style organization. Jude gets jealous because the sort of hippie ringleader is, you know, pulling Lucy away from him. And the film wants us to kind of celebrate uh, Lucy's uh, passionate opposition to the Vietnam War. But then it turns out that these new left activists she gets in with are actually these crazy radicals and they're and they're very dangerous. So the film, for a, a split second, appears to be approaching a celebration of some kind of like new left radicalism or something. And then it's like, oh yeah, no, actually this was bad. And then it consolidates the romance plot where like Lucy comes to her senses and she she gets away from student radicalism. And there's nothing you can say that can't be said. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Really, at the end of the day, all you need is love. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not exaggerating when I say that this film ends with a rooftop concert uh, where, yeah, the final number is all you need is love. And that's that's the real message of this movie, folks. 
There's nothing you can make that can't be made No one you can save that can't be saved Nothing you can do but you can learn how to be you in time It's easy All you need is love All you need is love All you need is love 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 is all you need Hey kid, get your ass out of here Come on Come on, come on. Like, let's temper all this because at the end of the day, love is all you, love is my politics. My, my politics, my politics are kindness. <laughs> yeah, this film is the politics of somebody who stood on the fringes of a demonstration once when they were at Columbia. And then by 1980 was telling people stories about how, oh man, you know, I, I marched with Dr. King and I was against, <laughs> and I was an activist who was against the war. And then by 1985, they're just like a corporate lawyer and then in 1992 they canvas for Bill Clinton. That's what the politics of this movie basically are. Anyway, I think all in all, I'm a little disappointed by this movie. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm disappointed by it as an artifact because the case you made for us discussing it and being subjected to it again was that it was going to be a perfect Michael and Us movie. And I feel like we have tossed it around for years as something that we'd watch on this podcast. But there's really nothing to talk about except the absence of anything political. I mean, it really does just offer this kind of decontextualized postmodern version of the 60s. You know, the kind that you consume when you go to buy gum or toilet paper at a drugstore or something. And then there's all those magazines, just every single month somehow, it's the anniversary of the JFK assassination. <laughs> every single month is the anniversary of when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. All these kind of echoes of past cultural touchstones are just served to you again and again, and you can buy them in collector's editions for $7.99 or whatever. A lot more than that, bud. <laughs> but there's just no there there to any of it. I mean, that's that's all this movie is. In fact, I'll go as far as saying that I wish it was more politically reactionary so we had more to talk about. It's just a bad movie. So in conclusion, I mean, uh, not my favorite thing we've watched for the podcast, but you know, we are professionals and sometimes you just got to carry that weight. <laughs> Well, let me tell you, folks, this movie made me want to put a revolver to my head. As a palate cleanser from this, uh, can we do a Hard Day's Night soon, please? Sure. All right, I'll look forward to that. Sorry about this one, folks. Say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. What are you doing? I can't do this right now. You tell me that it's evolution, well, you know. Yeah, we all want to change the world. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Some shadow seems to be a safe attached. Hey, watch it up there! Uh, Daffy? What? Daffy, this is a serious ballad. Shall we try it again? Roll them when you're ready, Amadeus. 
There are places I'll remember all my life. Though some have changed, some forever, not for better. Some have gone and some remain. All these places have their moments. With lovers and friends, I still can recall. Some are dead and some are living. In my life, I've loved them all.